Hi everyone. So every year for my birthday in November, my mom makes the famous Jason cake. The Jason cake is a work of dessert art. It's amazing. It's this rich, juicy chocolate cake with thick white frosting and a coat of dark hard chocolate. It's something to look forward to every year. I think people have tried to become friends with me just to secure an invite to my family's house on, birth on my birthday to have this cake. So I love that my mom makes me this cake. My two younger siblings, on the other hand, not so much. They also want the cake for their birthdays, which come about a week apart in September. And a few years ago, they started demanding that my mom make the Jason cake for them too, and my mom caved. I, of course, now get very upset, and this debate roils the family every September and November. People take sides. My siblings are on one side, I'm on the other. I think that my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is on my side, but I know he can't say anything publicly, so it's okay, dude. I, I, I won't say anything. I think my dad's probably on my side, too, and I think my mom would be, too, but I think she just wants to make the cake and not get in the middle of everything. Anyway, every year there's this big debate over whether my brother and sister should get the Jason cake for their birthday. Unfortunately for them, I know my Jewish history, and as they say, knowing is half the battle. Today's episode is all about a younger sibling, Jacob, successfully stealing the Jason cake, well, the family inheritance, from his older brother Esau. Their mom, Rebecca, is complicit in the whole business, while their father, Isaac, the son of Abraham, is totally duped. Like the Jason cake, the resentment between Jacob and Esau will make a lasting enemies in the Near East, spread fear throughout the land, and cause the younger brother to be sent out into the wilderness alone. So let that be a warning to my beloved siblings. In other words, all you older and younger brothers and sisters out there should probably know this story. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So I'm about to head out on vacation for a couple of weeks, so there's going to be a little break in the podcast after this one, probably in, for the rest of March. But when I come back, we're going to start to wrap up the story of the patriarchs and matriarchs and get into some modern Israeli history. But in the meantime, we're still working our way through the book of Genesis. And as I discussed last episode, Isaac's role in the Torah is mostly as the passive actor or the foil around whom events take shape or to whom events happen. Although there are a couple of stories in which Isaac plays a more leading role, in terms of Jew I don't know, they aren't, I don't think, that critical. I can talk about them some other time in the interest of keeping this podcast moving along. So, once again, we find today Isaac playing the backseat role to the bold actions of his wife, Rebecca. She's the one who's really going to elevate Jacob, the younger sibling, into the third Jewish patriarch while sidelining her oldest child, Esau. Esau has come down through history with a very bad rap, while in reality I think he's just a giant teddy bear of a man who wants to be loved. The Torah claims both that they are twins and that one is older than the other. What happens, like Abraham's wife Sarah, is that Rebekah is barren. Isaac begs God to enable Rebekah to conceive, and she does, but she has a hard pregnancy. The twins are struggling inside her, and she asks God why this is happening, and God says, and I quote, Two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One people shall be mightier than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. 
I'm going to come back to this explanation later because it actually has a real historical and geographical connection. To give you a little hint, much of the story is actually a metaphor for the relationship between the kingdoms of Judah and Edom in the first millennium. In any case, Esau emerges first. He is red and hairy. Remember this red part because it becomes important. And then comes Jacob, holding on to the heel of Esau, which seems like an ominous symbol. And as they grow up, Esau becomes the hunter and outdoorsman, while Jacob remains something of a mama's boy, staying close to home. Isaac favors Esau, and Rebekah favors Jacob. One day, Esau returns from the outdoors famished. He sees Jacob cooking a stew and demands that Jacob give some to him. Jacob says, sure, but first, sell me your birthright. The birthright is the inheritance that went to the oldest sibling of the family. In the ancient Near East, this was a common legal contract, and it could be traded or sold. So Esau, perhaps being a tad dramatic, agrees to sell his birthright because what good would it do me since I'm about to die of hunger? Jacob gives him the food, and Esau swears to relinquish his birthright. The rabbis would later interpret this phrase as encouraging birthright participants to take their staff out drinking after the trip. You know, you ought to know. But anyway, fast forward some decades, and Isaac is now 100 years old and blind. Fearing that he will soon die, he's actually still got 80 years left, he summons Esau to his side. Esau says, Hineni, here I am, that famous phrase that Abraham utters when God calls him to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac now tells Esau to go hunt him some meat, after which he will give Esau his blessing. So it's important to know that there are two things here. There's the birthright, which is the material inheritance that Esau gave up, and the blessing, which is kind of the spiritual transfer of family leadership from father to oldest son, which Esau has not given up. So while Esau is out, his mother Rebekah springs into action, setting up a scene where Jacob will pretend to be Esau in order to receive the blessing. While Jacob runs off to get dressed in his brother's clothes, including covering himself in goat skin in order to appear hairy, Rebekah prepares a meal. If this is starting to sound like a funny sketch comedy, you're not wrong. I sort of think this chapter is probably the most humorous in the Torah. Uh, you can imagine the scene of the blind Isaac sitting there calmly while Jacob and Rebekah work frantically in silence to deceive him. It's also fairly suspenseful. Like, is Jacob going to pull this off? And at first, Isaac is a little skeptical. How'd you get back so quickly, he asks, and Jacob says, well, God granted me good fortune. Then Isaac notices that his voice is that of Jacob, so he has Jacob come close so he could feel him. And of course, when he feels the hairy goat skin, he concludes that it's Esau. Then he has Jacob kiss him so that he could get close enough to smell his clothes, which indeed smell like Esau. Finally, he has Jacob click on a clay tablet that says, I am not a robot, and thus we get the origins of Ticketmaster. Anyway, sufficiently confident at this point that this is indeed Esau before him, Isaac bestows his blessing. It's a really nice blessing. God will give him great abundance. People will serve him and nations will bow to him. He will be the master over his brother, and those who curse him will themselves be cursed, and those who bless him will themselves be blessed. And with that, Jacob exits stage right, and Esau immediately enters stage left. He repeats the whole process, gets down in front of Isaac, and asks for his blessing. And of course, Isaac says, well, who are you? And then it dawns on him that he and his favorite son have been duped. As I mentioned earlier, the rabbis twisted themselves in knots, trying to explain that it was justified because Esau is wicked. 
They blame Esau as the father figure for everything bad that ever happened to the Jews. The destruction of the first and second temple, the Roman occupation, European anti-Semitism, the Nazis. Every description of Esau is used as ammunition against his character, so that you'd think that Jacob and Rebekah are justified in doing what it takes to get Esau out of the picture. But a straight reading of the text just doesn't hold up to that vilification. I mean, Jacob is a little, maybe more refined than his hunter-gatherer brother, but Esau doesn't do anything particularly bad. In fact, it's Rebecca and Jacob who behave kind of terribly throughout this story. But Jacob is the one who ends up a Jewish patriarch, so we kind of have to spin things to make him look good eventually. So the rabbis finally threw up their hands and said, yeah, well, even if we can't quite justify it, this was God's plan, so they were just following that. And I think that's reasonable commentary to come down through the ages that we have to create this story. But because I'm so interested in the history of the things and the straight reading of the Bible stories, I just find it a little bit unfair to Esau. And in a heartbreaking scene, Esau begs Isaac for at least some kind of blessing. He admits to having sold off his birthright, and Isaac admits that his earlier blessing made Jacob the master over Esau, and he doesn't know what else he can do for Esau. It's really sad, and actually Esau begins crying. So Isaac gives him a blessing. Esau will also enjoy abundance, says Isaac, but he's going to live by the sword. He's going to serve his brother, and eventually he will break Jacob's yoke from his neck. In other words, he'll get away from him. Esau comes away from this, as you can imagine, holding quite the grudge against Jacob. And he makes a promise to himself that when Isaac dies, he's going to kill Jacob too. So once again, again and again, the Torah gives us this interplay of brothers against brothers, of older brothers who are nefarious and younger brothers who emerge over them as leaders. Cain and Abel. Abel was the younger one. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the younger. Esau and Jacob now. Soon it will be Jacob's son Joseph against his many older brothers. Moses and his older brother Aaron when we get to the book of Exodus. The Torah returns again and again to this theme. But this story is also really interesting, I think, for its direct connection to the historical record. I haven't talked about this in a while, but if you remember back to some of the earlier episodes, I talked about how many stories in the Torah and the Bible were written to reflect the historical circumstances of their time, the first millennium BCE. Some stories were written to make a contemporary king look good, or to justify ancient Israel's actions, or to explain a cultural shift. The story of Jacob and Esau reflects the relationship between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Edom next door. So let me explain. Edom means red, and as you will recall, Esau was red-colored when he was born. There are several other references to red things in this biblical account, and it's pretty clear that Esau is the father of the Edomites. And if you remember from a map, or if you want to look at a map, the kingdom of Judah was located in the area around Jerusalem, reaching down to the southern end of the Dead Sea and out to Beersheba. The kingdom of Edom was just below that, encompassing a huge chunk of the Negev Desert and stretching down to Petra in Jordan. The biblical scholar Richard Friedman notes that the details of this story correspond to the historical record. It's really interesting, and just remember God's explanation for why Rebecca's twins were struggling so much during her pregnancy. For starters, why are Jacob and Esau twins? Well, because the Jews at this time considered the Edomites to be close relatives, even though they were often at war with one another, just like Jacob and Esau were in the womb. 
Think about how today we often talk about the Israelis and Palestinians being brothers and sisters beneath it all. And why does God decree that the younger sibling would be the master of the older? Well, because even though the kingdom of Judah was younger than the kingdom of Edom, it became more powerful after defeating the Edomites during the reign of King David, sometime around the year 1000 BCE. And why does Jacob get both the birthright and the blessing? Well, because Judah was more prosperous in all respects than Edom. And how about the part where Isaac blessed Esau, saying that someday he would be free from Jacob's dominance? Well, because the biblical writer was well aware that in the 9th century BCE, the Edomites broke free from Judah's occupation. Totally cool, right? In other words, the biblical writer of this story wasn't just relaying a legend about the origins of Judaism, he was also using this story to explain to his readers why the geopolitical world they lived in looked the way it did, and justified the kingdom of Judah's dominance in the region. Sometimes, when we take a step back to look at the Torah as a kind of historical document, we realize that the Hebrew Bible was also written as a contemporary book to explain the state of the world. That just blows my mind. It's so cool. This part of the story ends with Rebecca finding out about Esau's intention to kill Jacob and conducting yet another deception, this time to convince Isaac to let Jacob leave town. She says it's to make sure that he doesn't marry a local Canaanite girl, so Isaac sends Jacob off to live with Rebecca's brother. And so Jacob flees, and like other brothers before and after them, Esau and Jacob will remain apart for many decades to come. Let me return to Isaac for just a minute, because I've been a little unfair in describing him as such a passive character, and this is basically the last time that we're going to hear from him. There's a more positive way to look at Isaac, and I like the positive version better, and that is that he's stable. Unlike Abraham, who doesn't get to the promised land until well into his 70s, or Jacob, who will leave Canaan from time to time, Isaac is born and bred in the Holy Land. He's not a wandering Jew. He puts down roots in the land, raises and nurtures his family there, and perseveres through all the various misfortunes handed to him in life. The Akedah almost sacrifice, going blind, marrying a woman he didn't get to choose, getting deceived in a way that divided his family. Unlike his father and his son, Isaac only takes one wife, and he doesn't bed her servant just because she's barren. Instead, he begs God on her behalf to allow her to conceive. The other patriarchs don't do that. So, if we can accuse him of the flaw of passivity, we also have to acknowledge that he is eminently decent amidst his suffering. That he is loyal to his wife, to his land, to God, and that he keeps his sense of self throughout it all, never getting his name changed like Abraham or Jacob. As the Torah records, at the age of 180, Isaac expired and died, and was gathered unto his people, old and full of days. And like he had joined with his estranged brother Ishmael to bury Abraham in the cave in Hebron, so too will Esau and Jacob come together to place Isaac down next to his father Abraham, where he still lies today. Next episode. Jacob gets two wives for the price of, well, two. You'll see. The whole thing is a huge mess, and he also has this really weird dream out in the desert. See you next time.